Let's make our way to Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're going to cover a, a quite a big portion of Ephesians. And we're going to look from verse 7 up until verse 16. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read from verse 7. Hear the words of the living God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture we can study. Lord, I pray that you will help us to understand it properly, help us to understand our place and our part within your body, and help every believer, Lord, to truly take up the work of ministry. Thank you, Lord, that you give gifts to your church and that you are the faithful shepherd and you will lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us to trust you to grow up into you who is our head and may we depend on you like the branches depend on the vine for our every breath and our every walk of faith lord we pray this for your name's sake amen so as we as we begin and look at this text um, we'll, we'll see that this text shows us and helps us to understand what marks a mature church what is uh, some of the things that we should be looking for in a mature church. And now, of course, we've read the text, but what would you have said is a mark or marks of a mature church? Now, I suspect that if you have been here long enough, you would have been saying something like this, something along these lines. A mature church is a church that is Bible-centered and gospel-centered. That would be the sign that this church is mature. A church which holds the Bible high as the infallible, the inspired word of God and proclaims it without shame and without apology. Now, that is very important and a very important aspect of a mature church. In fact, it's indispensable. That would make my top three, in my top three of the list. But that answer alone falls short. In fact, ironically, by thinking like that, that that is all it takes to make a mature church, might even stifle the very maturity God wants for us. It is not so much Bible-teaching churches that are mature, but rather Bible-obeying churches that are mature. In other words, it's churches, and I like this um, picture in my mind, is members and Christians who come to a Sunday, who come to the service, who come to hear the Word of God with their souls leaning forward to hear what God says eager to do it, eager to, to when they, they receive it, they're ready for action. They're ready to go out and do what they hear, right? James 1.22, that famous warning of Scripture says this, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You see, it's easy to hear and to be satisfied with the hearing alone and think, my job is done. I've listened to the text. I've listened to the sermon. How many people have just listened to Christ, just listened to his teaching, and at the end cried out, crucify him? 
You see, so it wasn't so much those who just heard the sermon. It was those who acted upon it, who, who trusted in his word and then did it, obeyed it. So we deceive ourselves by just hearing and not doing it. Many churches think of, the, of, of a church often like an amazing bus ride. An amazing bus ride. They have, an, they have someone driving the bus, someone in front doing all the work. The rest of the people really just, just enjoy the drive. They even sometimes brag to other people. It's like, hey, you must come and look at our amazing bus driver we have. <laughs> right? They invite people to experience it for themselves. Some of them even have their designated seats. And all hell breaks loose when that seat is taken by somebody else. Right? Now, I just want to say, nothing wrong with having your favorite seat. I know Tanya earlier was like complaining of one of her seats there. But, but right? But, but it's the idea of, of coming to church with a, a kind of an entertainment mindset, of, of a passive mindset when we come to church. But you don't need people in the bus to have a bus ride. Right? You don't need people there. Now, but that's how, that's how an immature church thinks and, and, and acts. They really enjoy the bus ride, but they don't do anything else than just coming. Rather, a, a more biblical picture of the church is more like an orchestra. The church is supposed to be like an orchestra. Each little person, every member plays a vital role to make one harmonious, beautiful melody. Even the person playing the triangle, right? That person right at the back, <laughs> doing nothing but hitting the triangle at the right time, is essential to the, to the overall sound and beauty of the church. And that is what our text is going to teach us this afternoon. It's going to show us that Jesus has given us, the church, specific gifts, specific leaders to equip every member of the church to do the work of ministry, to build up his, his body. Every member has a role to play. Every one of us have to be active, not passive, if we are to grow up to become a mature church that, that honors and glorifies God. Now, remember the context. Just remember the context. We are in the practical section of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 1, started with the word, therefore, I therefore, pointing us back to chapters 1 to 3 and who we are in Christ so this is who we are now. Therefore, because we are saved by grace, now live like this. This is the road. This is the place we need to go. We've seen who we are in the heavenly places. And chapters 4 to 6 shows us how to live it out in the earthly places. So that's just what we are looking at now. And the very first thing we're commanded to do is verse 1. that says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We have a high calling. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And now our lives need to match this high calling of belonging to God, that we are his children. And the first way we walk worthy is by walking together. In verse 3, we see that. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first way we walk worthy is by not walking alone. The first way we walk worthy is by walking together. We have to be together together. And that is based upon the work of the Trinity itself that we saw in verses 4 to 7. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And so it makes sense that they want a body, a church, that are one. Now, that unity doesn't mean uniformity. So even though we are one and we should strive for unity, we are also very, very different. And God has given us a variety of different gifts for a purpose that we should use these different gifts to serve one another, to love one another, and to grow up. So it's not just that we all have to be carbon copies of one another. No, it's we have unity, but there's also diversity. And that's what verses 7 to verse 16 is showing us, that God intentionally gave us a diversity of gifts in the church to equip us and to strengthen us. So our text divides into three sections. We'll look at the giver in verses 7 to 10. The gifts, verses 11, verse 11, and then the goal of that. So Paul begins the section by looking at the giver. Who is the giver of these gifts? And he looks at the ascended, the sovereign, the ascended king, the Lord Jesus, who has conquered every enemy and has subdued him under his feet. Look at verse 7. So verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of 
of Christ's gift. Now here Paul makes a statement which the whole Bible makes of every Christian. Jesus, by his own sovereign will, gave each believer, every believer without exception, gifts to serve one another, to serve um, our brothers and sisters in the church. So every believer has one. And we receive our gift at the moment of salvation. That's when we receive these gifts. Notice that it is called grace. This gift, it says, but grace was given to each one of us. We don't deserve these gifts, these spiritual gifts. We cannot manipulate God to give us gifts. So we cannot go to a school of prophecy to learn prophecy. We can't go to a school of speaking in tongues to learn speaking in tongues. Because the gifts are given. It's Christ's prerogative to give to whomever he wants to. It's not our prerogative to twist God's arm to give us the gifts we really would like to have. This is, isn't this humbling? To just accept who you are and accept your place in the body of Christ. And that's why the greatest of all is love. Because the moment that it becomes a competition, the moment we want to try to outshine one another in our gifts, that is when disorder and chaos comes and the devil comes in and destroys us. But if we find the light in using our gifts, however small, however big, to serve one another, there is a simple joy in that. And that's what we want to strive for. We want to be other-focused, not self-focused in that. And that's why the rest of the verse, verse 7 says, He's given grace to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. These are according to his gifts. It's his prerogative. And so I know, I know some of you might, might have heard this before, and I might have mentioned this before, but it's a good place just to reiterate this as well. In some circles who believes in spiritual gifts, and maybe even to the extreme of that, We'd say that every believer must have one particular gift as a sign that you are either spirit-filled or that you are baptized with the Spirit. And the most common one of those are speaking in tongues. You will hear sometimes people promoting this and say, if you are baptized with the Spirit, you must speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, that's a sign that you do not either have the Spirit or at least not baptized with the Spirit as a second experience after your salvation. But there's one verse in the Bible that just kills that argument right at, right at the start. is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. He says, he says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now he's asking these questions. Are all apostles? Rhetorical question. No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak of tongues? No. You see? So this text should just put you at ease, not to be um, dissuaded or, or to be um, condemned unnecessarily as if you do not have the Holy Spirit, if you cannot speak in tongues, for example. Paul has said that the various gifts believers have is like different members of a body. And just like a body, you don't just have one member. It's not just one piece of you. you we have different parts of our body with all different functions. The same point is, is there. The gifts are different for a reason that we can cooperate together, that we're functioning together. But then before moving on to what specific gifts Christ has given us, Paul just pauses, steps one step, takes one step back, and just looks at Christ, looks at his ascension. It's because of his ascension that he is our sovereign king that can give these gifts to us in verses 8 to 10. So let's look at verse 8. It says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So he is quoting Psalm 68 verse 18. So he's quoting Psalm 68 verse 18, and he sees Christ as fulfilling that psalm. Now, Psalm 68 is a psalm which celebrates God's victory over his enemies. David pictures God as a great king, and when a king went out to battle, and when a king came from battle, when he, when he defeated his enemies, he would walk down in the middle of a long procession with his enemies right behind him, with all the crowds on the left and on the right cheering and applauding and celebrating this victory 
that their king has just achieved. And David says, that is God. God is our great king and he has conquered our enemies and he has ascended to the throne. He has ascended on high and his enemies are walking behind him in shame. But you know how amazing, now Paul applies that prophecy or that scripture of God and he applies it to Christ. That's one of the one of the best ways you can prove the deity of Christ, if you ever speak to a Jehovah Witness, if you ever speak to somebody or a sect that denies the deity of Christ, just use some of these Old Testament scriptures that refers to Yahweh and refers to God and then how the New Testament applies it to Christ and says this is Christ. Christ is the one who has done this, who has, a, who has won this victory. So that's, what, that's an amazing thing. Paul says this is who Jesus is. He is our great king he has defeated all of his enemies and he has ascended to the right hand of God the father but this king is different than other kings he did something amazing in his love for us and Paul just elaborates on that in verse 9 look at verse 9 it says in saying he ascended what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions the earth so Paul is just using a logical argument here if somebody ascends to a, to, a new, to a height, it means they must be before that at the lower position, before they do that. They must be in a lower position before they can ascend. Now the question is, how far did Christ descend? What position did he have to leave to become a man? Remember, the Son is the eternal Son. He had no beginning. He is truly God. He is an infinite being. But for something which has no limits, which is infinite, to become something finite, like a human being, is an infinite descent. descent. You can't measure the distance between infinite and finite. You can't. That distance is immeasurable. I think it's John Flavel that said, the distance between the most glorious angel and the lowest worm on earth, if you would if you be able to measure that distance, is not a great as great a distance as between God and man, because the distance between an angel and a worm is still the distance between one creature and another creature. But now we have the distance between an infinite God and a finite man. And that's what makes this text so glorious. He says, how low did he go? It says, the lower regions, the earth. The earth is the lower region. Just by becoming a man, just by descending on earth, it was an infinite descent. And Philippians 2 verse 8 says this as well. It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He went lower than just becoming a man. He went to the most humiliating, torturous death imaginable to death on a cross. You can't go lower than that. And that's what made this king, that's what makes his, him so glorious. How did he con conquer his enemies? By war, by, by force, by weapons? No, by hanging on a cross. By hanging on a cross. His crown was the crown of thorns. He came in love to die in the place of criminals and rebels and to make them his people. That's how he won a people for himself. He conquered the hearts of his people through his love. And by removing that sin from us and paying for our sins in full, he also defeated the devil. And that, those are his enemies walking behind him in shame, in open shame. Colossians 2 verse 15 makes it explicit. It says, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there the rulers and authorities refer to angelic beings, the demons and the devil. Now, this is an irony. This is beautiful if you think about how Christ defeated the devil. The very thing the devil thought would defeat Christ defeated him. So remember the prophecy, it says, he will bruise your heel and he shall crush your head. It was the very nail that bruised the heel of Christ. That same nail crushed the head of the serpent. So in the bite, he killed himself in a sense. Christ conquered through the cross. 
And that's the beauty of this, that it was part of the plan to, that his heel would be bruised and so defeat the devil himself. And then, remember, not just his death, but his resurrection and his ascension spelled the doom of the devil and his angels. When Christ rose and when he ascended, it's, it's only a matter of time. His doom is certain. Look at verse 10. It says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Death didn't have the final say. He ascended. He's victorious. He's reigning with all authority for the good of his church. And that's why the rest of Philippians continues like this. Philippians 2 verse 9 to 11. It says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now he fills all things. Now what that, that means is that there's no area, there's no space, there's no dot on this planet which is not under the sovereign rule of Christ. He fills it all in heaven and on earth. Everything is under his wisdom, under his rule, under his might. Jeremiah 23, 24 helps us here. Listen to this. It says, Can a, ma- can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? You see, that's what it means. Christ fills every area. He sees it all. He's, his authority is over all, and he will come to judge. Beloved, can we just pause here and worship our king? Look at our king. Look at who he is. What a king. Who, what a king is like him that would climb off his throne as God, one who has all authority, all power, and to hang on a shameful cross for his enemies. Who would do that? Who would leave his glory? Who would leave his honor? Who would leave his majesty to save wretches like us? Who would do that? This is an awesome Christ. This is a Christ who deserves our, glo- our worship. Beloved, he took your place on that cross. He, ha- he hung there for you, beloved. No sin you have done is unpaid for. Every sin you've committed is, is, is paid in full. No demon, no devil can separate you from his love because he's conquered him. Now he even makes our enemies serve us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See all of his enemies, see all of our enemies walk behind him in shameful defeat as he ascended on high. Beloved, is he not worthy? Is he not worthy of our worship? Shall we not give it to him right now? But also what peace this truth should give you what peace that your king is ruling your king is on the throne think of your life with all of its complexities with all of its um, struggles think of how often you feel that things are chaotic out of control think of how often you see the world in disarray and wondering can anything good come from this and the truth is absolutely absolutely christ is not passive christ He's not hoping for the best from history. Christ is not only doing damage control for his church. No, everything that happens to, a, to his bride happens because he's reigning. It, it's because he's on the throne. That is what's happening to us. It's all purposeful. Christ is the sovereign ruler, but he's also a wise ruler. He's wise. Beloved, does he not see further than us? Does he not see our entire lives, our entire futures? Does he not already see the end from the beginning? Does he not know everything and even every possibility? We only see now. We have only this little perspective, but can we not trust him who loved us so much, who died for us with our lives as well? So wherever you are, if you, are, if you belong to him, if you do not belong to him, Christ is calling you right now to bow your knee. Bow your knee before him. Bow it now before it will be bowed for you on the day of judgment. Come now, submit yourself now, give your allegiance to him and follow him for he is gracious. 
He's a gracious king. He will have mercy upon you if you come. So that's the giver. That is who is on the throne. That is who is giving these gifts. He has ascended victoriously over all of his enemies. But now let's look at the gifts. Look at the gifts now. Christ now gives gifts to his church to mature her in verse 11. Christ gives good gifts to equip his saints. Okay. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So Paul continues this analogy that Christ conquered his enemies, enriched with the spoils of victory, and now because he has this lavish gift, he now gives gifts to his church. Now again, when we, uh, uh, I think a common mistake we make when we come to any passage about the spiritual gift is to think that it's an exhaustive list. I don't think any list should be taken as an exhaustive list. But remember here, here it's actually not speaking of gifts in the sense of what every believer has, but rather focuses on people. People that Christ gives to his church. And these people are his gifts to the church to mature the church and equip the church. And what all these people have in common, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, have one thing in common, and all of them focus on the gospel, focuses on the word of God. All of them focuses on the truth of God's word. And that's the main way Christ equips his church, is through the word. And he uses people to do that. Now, this has often been called the fivefold ministry. I don't know if any of you have ever heard this, okay? But this verse has been used to say this is the fivefold ministry that is still active and alive today. But as we will study, we'll notice that at least, I believe at least two of these gifts are, or people rather, these offices are no longer for us today. And that's the first two. The first two people are the apostles and the prophets. Now we've already looked at them earlier in chapter two. But remember who the apostles were. The apostles were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' baptism and his ministry and his resurrection. So just by definition, if that's one of the requirements of an apostle, it makes sense that they would cease with the last apostle dying around 90 AD, I think, if, if my memory serves me correct. So Paul, remember, Paul has been an eyewitness of Christ, and Christ himself has sent out Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Apostles, like the prophets, received direct revelation, wrote it down for us, and now we're studying the words of the apostles. The prophets, a similar function, although they were under the, the apostles, they also received divine revelation from God and they gave and then gave that revelation to the church. Remember chapter 2, verse 20. Just to glance back to that as well, it says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So these two offices, the apostles and prophets, were foundational. They were laid now the church, to stabilize the church. And with the completion of our New Testaments and our Bibles, that foundation is laid. It cannot be laid again. It cannot, we cannot add to that foundation. And that's why I believe those two offices of apostle and prophets are complete. We're no longer looking for another apostle, another prophet to come to tell us uh, a new revelation of God. But I believe the rest, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, they still are for today. Let's read the rest of the verse. It says, the evangelist and the shepherds and teachers. So evangelists come from the Greek word gospel, the evangel, the, the good news. Philip in Acts 21 was, a, was an evangelist. Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And I believe evangelists were those who were specially gifted to preach the gospel and to defend the gospel against false gospels. So think about apologists, right? Famous apologists. Like when, when apologists are sharing the gospel by defending the faith, doesn't that so equip us? When, when believers hear that, that just strengthens our faith. That just gives us, because remember, these evangelists ought to do what verse 12 says, to equip the saints. So even in their evangelism, they're actually equipping us. They're strengthening our faith that we might do the work of, of, um, of ministry as well. 
So evangelists, I still believe God gives certain men, certain people, women, men and women, the, this gift of evangelism that they are so good at sharing the gospel. They're equipping the church. But now the last two, I think we should actually take them together as one office, as one office when it says the shepherds and teachers. And we see that mostly in the Greek construction. It's like the, the two, two titles of one office. It's like saying a husband and father. Husband and father. We're thinking of two functions, yet they are the same. It's the same person. The same thing here. When it says shepherd and teacher, teachers, it's referring to the same person, but with two different focuses. So shepherd is that wonderful description of what pastors are to do with the, the sheep. Jesus is our chief shepherd, and he gives under shepherds, he gives pastors to bless his church, to shepherd them. And the number one thing a shepherd is to do is to teach, is to teach the sheep. That's why it continues that these are shepherd teachers. That's the uh, it should be seen together. And the most important function there is to feed his sheep. Remember what Jesus said to, to Peter. He says, if you love me, Peter, what would you, you must do what with my sheep? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. That's what the sheep needs. We need food. So that's what a pastor must do. A pastor must feed the sheep. He must teach the Bible. Protect his sheep and the flock from false teaching and false gospels lead them by example, not by force and not by domineering over them, but being gentle and leading them. Now that's Christ's plan for his church. He gives gifted leaders who are godly in character, who teach faithfully the word of God. And that's how we mature, which, is, which leads to the last point. What is the goal? Let's close our time together by looking at the goal what are the goal with these shepherd teachers, these evangelists, these apostles and prophets? What are they to do? And the first goal is quite clear, to equip, equipping the saints. That's the first goal that, that um, Christ has with these gifts, is to equip. Look at verse 12, very clear it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now the word equip there, is used in a medical term to put something that's dislocated back into its place. So think of a dislocated bone or an arm. And when it's dislocated, your arm is useless or you can't use that part of your body. But when it's put back in its place, when it's healed, when it's restored, when it's equipped, so think of that word equipped in that way, then your body is ready for service again. It, it's useful again to, to do something, okay? Matthew 4.21, the same Greek word was used with the disciples mending their nets. So think of that picture as well of mending nets. Like the net is broken, you can't use it, but when it's equipped, when it's mended, now it's ready to catch fish again. Now that's the idea. That's what shepherd teachers are to do. This is what pastors are to do. This is what evangelists are to do. This is what the word of God is to do to us. As we receive the word of God, it feeds us, but it also heals us. It restores us. You see, all of us come with brokenness. We all come with broken lives, messed up lives. And we come and as we hear the word of grace, as we hear Christ's call to repent and to follow him, there's healing there. We are restored back to him and back to one another that we, are, that we can be useful again. Broken lives are made whole. People are transformed into the image of Christ. People receive forgiveness of their sins and restoration so that they can be of use to other people. You see, that's what really God wants for you. He wants you to be useful for others. And then that equipping leads to the second aspect. The second goal is to work. So once you've been restored to God, now that should lead you to work, which verse 12 says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Notice, who is doing the work of ministry in this verse? Right? It is the saints. It is the ordinary Christian. So if we have 20 members in this church, we have 20 ministers. How many ministers does your church have? Yeah, no, we have about 20 ministers. Yo, that church must be blessed. Right? How can you support so many ministers there? Right? No, but that's really the idea. Is If, if we are members of a church, we are, we are committing ourselves to become a minister of that church. To serve that church. The ordinary church member have to do the work. 
The church is not a bus drive. Okay? That comes back to that idea. We are an orchestra. We use our different gifts, our different talents, our different ways of, of interacting with one another to serve one another. Notice the focus of the work in verse 12. What is our focus? What are we focusing on in verse 12? Look at it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay, you can't get more church-centered than this, right? Jesus gives leaders to his church to equip the church that the church might build up the church. There's a lot of church there. Do you see that? That's Christ's plan. We should be working inward as well. We should be working towards one another because we want to make making disciples is not just for the lost. It's for one another. This is part of our make this is part of our fulfilling of the great commission to make disciples of one another as well. Now there's a saying, charity starts at home. Or before you change the world, make up your bed. <laughs> Have you ever heard that before? And the idea is simple. Why do you want to go out? You know, and change the world if you cannot even do the simple little thing of organizing your room. Now, again, that's God's will for you. He first wants you to walk worthy of your calling by being an ordinary Christian in the church. Be an ordinary Christian where you serve one another in the church before you want to go out and change the world. First be faithful here so that you will be faithful out there as well. Learn to give yourself for your brothers and your sisters at home so that you can give yourselves as well to those who are lost. In verse 15, shows us how we do this work. Look at verse 15. It says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So as believers are equipped, are taught the truth, now we speak the truth and we speak the truth in love. There's a sense where we've, we've been emphasizing this, especially if you look at our church covenant and what we believe church membership is. There's a watching over one another. We are, it's not just the pastor that is overseeing the whole church. We are taking care of one another. We're watching over our brothers and sisters as well. We speak the truth in love. When some believers, now if you just have one or the other, we, we will be imbalanced, right? Some churches are great at truth, a lot of truth, they cannot wait to correct someone that's wrong. They can't wait to show someone their false doctrine. They, they're out there. They are the, theology police, right? The moment you, you use a wrong tense or a wrong thing, they, they're on your case. Or if you quote a verse out of context, you're like, boom, they're on you, right? They are quick to accuse and slow to apologize. They are proud people, and God opposes the proud. You see, so even we, if we are saying we want to be people of truth, we shouldn't lose the other side of having love. And, but yet, imagine if we just had love and no truth. Again, other churches are great at love. It's love, 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 love. Anything goes. There's compassion. There is listening to one another. But there's also no standards of holiness. There's no standards of truth. You're, you are right. I am right. We are all right because we love each other. Right? Love is seen simply as what doesn't offend someone. Love is then redefined of making you feel good. Instead of the thick biblical idea of love, of love being a, a verb, love being sometimes confrontational, sometimes telling you something you don't want to hear so that you might be healed. Biblical love is to tell the truth in love. That's the full picture. So, beloved, don't, don't buy into this idea that if, if we tell the truth to people, that's somehow unloving. No, it is loving to tell people the truth. And people will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. That's what we do. We love people enough to tell them the truth. Now, these two things are not enemies. They're friends. We love people, and we tell them the truth in a gracious, in a gentle, in a winsome manner. So we don't want to lose either one of them. We want to be like Christ. We want to imitate him in his love for us as well. Remember what Jesus did. Jesus is our example. He says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Right? That might not have felt very good. Or he looks at the Pharisees and says, you are of your father the devil. And he tells it to them because he loves them. He wants them to wake up. But he says it as it is. 
But again, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's our idea. We want to come to one another. We want to speak the truth to one another. If we see sin in one another's lives, we want to point it out, but we want to point it out in a loving, gracious way. And the result is when we are equipped, when we are working, now comes the maturing. Then comes the maturing. Look at verse 13. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, our diversity in our gifts is given so that we may have unity in our faith. We might come to a complete, a unified understanding of the gospel, of who Christ is, of, of these core truths of the faith. And the core truths of the faith are all centered on one person. Again, the whole Bible is about our Lord, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that unity, as we grow into that unity, we become like Christ. You see, that should be our goal, not just to know these truths, but to become like these truths, to become like Jesus. Again, in the past, if you were quick to accuse and slow to apologize, as you speak the truth in love to one another, now you become the opposite. You are slow to blame shift. You're slow and you are quick to ask for forgiveness. Where you were quick to give in to lust and quick to fall into lust, now you are growing in the fear of the Lord and you pluck out your eye. If it causes you to sin, you cut off your hand. That's, now you can just apply that to so many areas of your lives. There where Christ is not being shown, that's where we want to be maturing. But we need one another to speak the truth to, uh, to, uh, to us that we can grow up in that way. And that's true maturity. True maturity is not just knowing, but reflecting Christ, becoming like him. And that maturity will start to become stable in such a way that they are, well, we're not just easily taken with new and false teaching. Look at verse 14. It says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Children live for the moment. <laughs> they just live for what they want right now. They cannot see things long term. They only think of the here and the now. In the same way, immature believers just want the newest thing or the, the next thing that will tickle their ears, that makes them excited about something. But don't give them the old gospel, the, 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 the truth that the Bible says that I already, quote unquote, know about. That's a sign of immaturity. Immature Christians can't settle down in truth because they are not satisfied with just the truth. They constantly crave for something new, something that is so extraordinary that they are easily to be led astray by that. Something fresh. But God wants you to settle down. He wants you to settle down on firm convictions. And this is something I've recently discovered as well. Even with the areas where we disagree, God wants you to be convicted by that. Romans 14, when it talks about believers who disagree with one another, it says, Paul says, let each one be what? Fully convinced in his own mind. Even when we disagree, God doesn't want you to be wishy-washy on that. He wants you to be firm on that in love and in grace. But even where we say, okay, let's agree to disagree, but I'm fully convinced that this is what the Bible teaches. We should be people that are firm on the truth. That's, how, that's what a mature bride looks like. And when each one of us do our part, when each one of us are working properly, look at what verse 15 to 16 says. It says, As we speak the truth, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, it's as each body part is connected and now working together, actively serving one another with their gifts that we are growing up. So let me close for us with just three very basic applications, very, very um, logical applications. But this text shows us that you cannot, firstly, you cannot be a mature Christian if you do not belong to any church. It comes back to this point we made even in the previous section as well, that Christ's plan for the maturity of his children is to belong 
to a church where there are shepherd teachers, where there are pastors that's going to equip you, that you can use to equip one another, that we can grow up together. Do you see how churchy this is? Again, okay? Church-centered. So I, I just want to say, I do think it's possible to be a true believer and not be part of a church, but I do think it's impossible to be a mature believer if you're not part of a church. Do you see the difference? I think there are many true believers, like one sheep wandering on his own or her own, thinking, I'll, I'll make my own way. I'll understand what I have to do. But that person's always going to be immature. But that's what God's plan is. But secondly, that's just the first circle. Let's draw it a bit closer inward. As we draw this circle a bit closer, you cannot become a mature Christian, not just if you are a part of a church, but you need a church with at least qualified shepherd teachers. So again, there are some sheep who belong to a group of believers, a group of Christians, but there are no shepherd, there are no shepherd teachers in that church to teach them, to equip them. So, for example, many house churches functions like this, right? They're just meeting up and they're just sharing with one another. But there is no leadership. There's no shepherds there. And so again, it's just going to be the blind leading the blind. It's just going to be one sheep trying to help the other sheep. Now, that's at least better than doing it on your own. Okay, that's at least one step closer. But Christ wants you to be in a church where there are elders, where there are pastors that can lead you, that you have to obey and submit to. And again, I think, um, so not just that, but even as we belong to a church and shepherd teachers, shepherd teachers who then not share their personal stories or their personal experiences, but who preach the word of God. So that's just drawing it one more closer. Second Timothy 4.2 says this. It says, Paul is talking to Timothy. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, isn't it already here, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So again, yes, are you in a church, but are you in a church where there are pastors and are you in a church where your pastors and elders are teaching the Bible? That's essential. And here's the last circle, the last circle we're drawing, okay? In a church, church of shepherd leaders, but then one more, you cannot be a mature Christian until you are part of the church where the members are actively serving one another and speaking truth to one another. So you see, we need all three of those ingredients, okay? We need a church, we need shepherd teachers, and then we need ordinary members who take their role seriously to serve one another to become more like Christ. Because that is what Jesus has planned for us. Now, just a quick word on how will this member-to-member ministry look like? Now, I don't think we all have to suddenly make up our own discipleship program and you know, ask everybody over or one person over to our, our own discipleship program. Although, you know, if you want to do that, go for it. Just run it by us first, like the elders, okay? But uh, but you're welcome. To, but no, it's in our ordinary fellowship. It, this member-to-member ministry is when we do our fellowship intentionally. When we, the time we have on Sunday, when we meet together on a Sunday, we ask each other, "How are you doing?" When we praying for one another, we're following up. Remember, we want to live close enough that we have to have the attitudes of bearing with one another and being patient, close enough that we actually need those qualities in our lives but then to also use our gifts. So some of you are excellent at serving. I love 1 Peter 4 talks about, he, he splits the gifts in two groups. He says there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. For me, that's just very helpful. Some people are excellent at communicating and speaking. So you have to speak more, okay? Speak more to your brothers and sisters about the gospel and encouraging them. But then some of you are excellent at serving. So serving one another, Right? The coffee and the tea, setting up the, the service. All of that is serving and equipping us to, to grow up and to know the word of truth. So whether you are more better at serving or better at teaching, but you are active. You're not just warming the pew. Or warming, a pew is an old word, right? Warming these uh, fancy seats. Okay? 
but we are stirring one another up in love and in good works. So beloved, let us follow Christ. Let us obey his plans. These are his blueprint for a mature church. Let's be the orchestra that Christ wants, that we all work together to make one unified melody for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word that equips us, that strengthens us, that clarifies our position as as your sheep. Lord, thank you that you have saved us for yourself. and You've also saved us to belong to one another. Lord, you build your church with wisdom. Not one single person that you add to our church, Lord, is, is random or of no use or of no purpose. Lord, you've given each one of us gifts spiritual gifts, even natural gifts that you'd like to use to equip us, Lord, to strengthen one another, to grow up into our knowledge of Christ and to follow him. Father, I pray that you will fill us with your spirit. I pray that you will knit our hearts in love towards one another, that we'll be looking out for one another, that we will be diligent to pray for one another. And so, Lord, carry one another's burdens in our race and this difficult, difficult road of obedience to you. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. Lord, and we thank you for your patience. Lord, we so often miss your plan, miss the point of Scripture often, Lord, with our lives. But thank you, Lord, for patiently bearing with us and leading us. I pray, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but help us also, Lord, to obey and to trust you, Lord. You are wise. You are good. And your word is perfect, without flaw, without error. So Lord, help us to trust you and to walk in obedience on your plan for maturity. We pray all of this for your beautiful name.